One really interesting evolution that happened as I was living and working here from when I started until now was like the rise in popularity of these Western style nightclubs and Mahurganat music being used by dancers. Hello, everyone. You're listening to the Belladance Live podcast. I'm your host, Jana Komarnitska, and I'm thrilled to share a new portion of dance inspiration with you. If you are a new listener, welcome to the show. Don't forget to subscribe and receive automatic updates about our new episodes. And if you are our regular listener, welcome back. Please leave your reviews on whichever app you're listening. They really help me promote the show and spread awareness about Belladance art form. Plus, I really like like hearing back from you. On this note, let's get to our today's episode. I know you want to take your balladance passion and bring more of it into your daily life. And this can go way beyond just dance training itself. Stop hiding your inner dancer from the world and choose your favorite item from my inner dancer collection. Mine is definitely a cropped Doom Doom Duck hoodie. If you follow my IG stories, you see it appearing there quite frequently. I'm curious what would be your favorite item, from hoodies and sport bras to notebooks and cute mugs inspired by Belladance created for life. Find the entire collection at myinnerdancer.com and reveal your dance passion to the world. And there is a special offer for our listeners. Use promo code PODCAST to receive 10% off your order. Also, there is a free worldwide shipping offered by My Inner Dancer. So, promo code PODCAST for 10% off, free shipping, and joy of revealing your Inner Dancer to the world. Check out myinnerdancer.com, link in the show notes. And for our today's episode, we have one more comeback star. To be honest, I'm always very happy to see and hear that our previous guests are willing to come back and do follow-up interviews. For me, it's a signal that they do not regret coming at the first time and spending their time with us before and just confirms that this project is in the right time in at the right place especially when it's such stars as our today's guest. Shahrazad is internationally known teacher and performer of Egyptian dance style. She moved to Egypt in 2015 and enjoyed a five-year performance career appearing in top nightclubs, films and music videos. Post-COVID, she opened her business, Shahrazad Studios, which focuses on providing high-quality education on Egyptian dance, music, and language, both online and in person, featuring her own instruction as well as promoting artists of origin. In our today's episode, we talked a lot about changes, current changes in the, or I would say recent changes in Cairo dance and music scene over the last uh, few years, especially post-COVID, and the influences and reasons uh, of these changes due to lockdowns, but not the ones that I kind of expected to discuss, but I had personally some surprises, not realizing that, oh, that's the case, oh, this is the thing. So let's see if you get those kind of discoveries too on this episode. Maybe it was just me, who knows. But also we talked about shifts in Shahrazad's personal dance focus and her career expansion, as well as slightly, as I mentioned, shifting the direction, or or I would say including other activities rather than just a full-time 
perform as one main thing. We also talked about uh, experience of teaching live classes in Cairo for local women, not at belly dance festivals, not uh, workshops for foreigners or visitors of Egypt, but specifically for local women. And we talked about teaching in general, teaching online, as well as new addition to Shahrazad activities such as organizing tours in Egypt. And on the dance topic, we dived into the importance of conditioning and body awareness for ballet dancers, which I knew that Shahrazad is uh, a big fan of uh, diving into these topics in general for herself, but last few years even deepened her knowledge and her interest in these subjects. By the way, for those of you who somehow missed the previous episode with Shahrazad, I strongly recommend to go back to episode number three, one of the very first, literally one of the very first episodes of the existence of this project, where we discussed uh, in depth life in Cairo, of course, dance life in Cairo, and all nuances, all things around this topic. So, for those of you who are interested, go and listen to it. And our today's conversation is a perfect continuation of that interview because we kind of discussed changes over the last few years, which is a perfect follow-up, not even different subject, but literally extension of our previous conversation. So, all this and, of course, as usually, more waits for you in our today's episode. Don't forget to screenshot and share it with your friends. And, as always, let us know what you think on the subjects that we discussed, as well as possibly any discoveries or surprises that you hit while listening to this episode. You know how many guests we had previously on this podcast sharing how much they experience with BDE push their dance career. You can have it too. Join one of the BDE experience intensives and get the training and experience of performing in lead and ensemble roles, open for Raksharki and fusion styles. Details and training materials for the casting are available at www.joinbde.com. Direct link in the show notes, joinbde.com. Hello, dear Shakarzad. Oh my God, I'm so happy to have you back on the Ballet Dance Life uh, podcast and uh, very excited to all these changes that I have been following your journey during the last uh, few years, almost five years since we recorded our first interview. And I'm very excited to talk about all of them today in our conversation. So thank you for joining me. <laughs> Thank you for having me. And I was just wondering like how long it had been since the last one. I couldn't remember, but I just, it just feels like forever ago. So <laughs> that's crazy. <laughs> it was about four and a half years, actually a little bit more. That's why I'm saying like almost five years actually. And your interview was one of the very first ones. I remember then you, you agreed to record our first interview without even really seen the project it was not yet announced and like okay what it is how it will be and uh, i'm very grateful that back then you agreed and supported and for everyone who somehow missed and skipped the first conversation i just want to remind our listeners go back to episode number three and listen because back then we talked 
about all nuances and all insights of life in Cairo. I'm sure we will touch it today too in our conversation, but I'm sure it will be a very different conversation today. Back then, you uh, kind of like, you were not new to Cairo, but your decision to move, like move, move, it was still recent, more or less. So it was for you that like, okay, you had already a lot of experience and understanding in Cairo, but you still were sort of like not figuring out that's not really correct. But in the beginning of your journey in terms of like, okay, I moved to Cairo, I'm living now to Cairo. And it was very interesting to see how things work. So for all people who kind of want to see backstage of life in Cairo that was very informative interview and on this note I actually want to ask you and to begin our conversation today looking back on this last four or five years since we recorded our first interview how your life in Cairo changed and how your focus uh, dense focus and dense goals uh, related to Cairo or in general changed over this uh, almost five years. Mm -hmm. It feels like so long ago. And actually, it would be interesting for me also to go back and listen to that interview. <laughs> because yeah, like, I guess I had already been here for maybe two years, a year or two years mm -hmm. at that point. But like you said, it's still, it was still just at the beginning. And now it's been more like six, seven years, you know, and being in a place like this, it could take a lifetime to to really learn everything there is to learn and to also assimilate with the culture. Like there's a lot of things that have changed for me personally since then, just life-wise and business-wise, of course. Um, but back then I was still struggling with Arabic, like still in the learning process. Uh, I still had a lot of experience that I hadn't gained yet performance wise. Yeah, I'm just at a totally different point now, I would say. So I have to go back and listen to it <laughs> and see what I had to say. Um, but yeah, uh, I continued performing right up until Corona started. I was performing full time for many years, kind of four or five years, I guess, before Corona started. Um, my work shifted a little bit. I tried lots of different things. One interesting thing that I'm sure that we're gonna, that's gonna come up as we talk about the current scene in Cairo, one really interesting evolution that happened as I was living and working here from when I started until now was like the rise in popularity of these Western style nightclubs and Mahurganat music being used by dancers. Because when I first moved here, like that wasn't a thing at all. And I was only working with band in like five star hotel restaurants and doing like the classic show. And then over time, it shifted as like more and more work became available in these kind of Western style nightclubs and with weddings too. Like the first weddings I did were always with band. And then a huge shift happened where you work a lot more with just pre-recorded music and giving it to the DJ. And yeah, it's been a lot of interesting evolutions in my own work, but also just watching <clears throat> the changes 
that have happened in the entertainment scene on their own, but then also post-corona, obviously, like so many things have changed, both for me personally and my focus, but also with the nightlife and the dance scene here, like it's a totally different landscape from when I first moved here. And it's kind of crazy to, to think about how much has changed. I was actually curious to ask you how lockdown changed uh, Cairo dancing. And uh, one news that you mentioned, uh, it was uh, changing music. And uh, now, um, do you think if it didn't have lockdown, it still would be so much popular today, these days, to use this style of music instead of like traditional live bands with classical songs, etc.? Or it was really something influenced with this like two-year lockdown and something changed due to this pause in public social activities too, not only in dance activities? I think that it was already happening before Corona started. Like this was already becoming a very popular trend and people outside, especially in the dance world, when you look on social media and you just see like 15, 20 second clips, it's very easy to kind of um, not see the full context in which it's happening. Uh, because a big, a big, um, motivation for this change wasn't coming from like dancers or anything. It was more so coming from nightlife changes and preferences. So more so like the public changing their preference towards these more kind of Western style nightclubs. And by that, I mean like mostly standing space, bar, DJ, and they're playing a mix of like foreign hit music along with like the Egyptian top hit music, which is intersecting now um and then the dancers are just put into this context um so it fundamentally changes the way the dancer has to has to perform because it's not a traditional context for the dance either um so this the popularity of these nightclubs and this music was already starting before corona but i do think that corona kind of accelerated the popularity of of this trend, um, because what happened was Egypt went into a full lockdown when Corona started for a whole month. It was like total lockdown with curfew and everything. And then for the following subsequent months, um, performance venues and clubs were still shut down. The first ones that came back were the ones without live entertainment. Like live entertainment wasn't allowed to happen for a really long time. So the first opportunities that dancers had to perform again weren't with, with band, it was only with, with CD because for a long time it was limited what live performers were allowed to do. And it actually became a really big issue with the musician community. They were really angry. They kept going to the the artist syndicate, which makes a lot of the laws and the rules as far as what performers can and can't do here in Egypt. Um, a lot of them were, were going in and complaining all the time because they were being blocked from work and the musicians don't make much money anyway. So they were really suffering during this time. Um, so I do think that that had an influence that sped it up 
because when the performance came back, it was mostly not live music that was even allowed. Um, and this is also why we saw dancers dancing in like dresses for some amount of time during the pandemic instead of costumes like it was technically not allowed that they were performing so they would show up to clubs and get paid to dance but they had to do it under the kind of disguise of like oh i was just there and i was just partying and they just had me on stage dancing with them and it wasn't work <laughs> you know so people had to find all of these loopholes um so i do think that changed and Another thing that's changed that people might not realize outside is the management side. Like, again, this was happening pre Corona, but certainly after Corona, with a lot of the live performance shut down, people were trying to find other ways to make money. So I feel that there's a lot of managers now that don't have extensive long term experience. They never worked with places doing full shows with dancers with band and Fanun Shabaya or anything like that. And even some guys that were Fanun Shabaya, which are like some of the folklore and backup dancers are now uh, advertising themselves as managers and reaching out to dancers, trying to get them to come to make money off of it. So there are so many like background changes that have happened that might not be apparent to people when they're just watching things online um, that have happened in this period of time for so many reasons. Um, and even during Corona, the popularity of the music as well, it just kept on kept on mm -hmm. skyrocketing. You know what I mean? Like so many new Mahargana artists came to fame in the last two, three years and lots, lots of change in the general entertainment scene which has in turn affected the way that the dance scene runs here. Mm. That's so interesting. I had no idea about, uh, which is like, it's kind of obvious, but I still uh, not really obvious because I didn't even think about that. The influence of legislation and restrictions on the music and, oh, we don't have live band, or then it's recorded music and also it's disguised as not actual performance, but as a just part of audience so it even asks and pushes for like Moma Harganat like this popular hits uh, to even disguise that oh it's actual performance uh, because if it's a nightclub and then suddenly they put on CD uh, I don't know classic uh, song from Um Kalsum and one of the audience members starts slightly performing it may be a little bit more difficult to disguise as not a performance, not a work even from this point. But before what I heard uh, that the popularity of, not popularity, but the change in music scene of Cairo, switching from live band to pre-recorded music was due to economic reasons after lockdown. So oh, people didn't have money to hire band. Do you think uh, this was also a big influence or you think the legislation restrictions that was, was the most biggest limitation for musicians post-COVID? I would say that it was mostly the restrictions first. Um, and then maybe the money thing after, because maybe for some time it took the, the restaurants and the clubs that do have live music a little bit of time to get the same audience back, especially because 
you know, it's not just Egyptian audience that we're going to these clubs. It was also foreign audience coming in. Um, so it did take a little bit of time to get back the audience. So you could say that, but I will say that last summer I did start going back to some venues. Um, and I'm still working like a little bit now, but just much less than before. Um, last summer, I went back to some of the same cabarets that I had been working at pre-pandemic, which are all live music venues. Uh, and these are venues, speaking of live music and social media, I say this over and over again, you'll never know the extent of what goes on here on social media because there are so many venues and spaces where the music and dance exists where you're never going to be allowed to take video. So people just don't think they exist. And cabarets are one of those environments. Cabarets are all live music. And there's tons of them. And I was working in them a lot pre-pandemic, uh, two, three times a night, like two, three different clubs a night with my full band. So um, when I started going back to them, uh, when they were finally allowed to open, they were booming. Business was booming. It was packed lots of money they just didn't want to pay as much as before so i don't know if it was an economic thing or if people just got cheaper honestly and started changing rules uh because another huge thing that's changed over the past two years in the dance scene which i still have a hard time wrapping my brain around is the influx of foreign dancers it was already happening pre-corona, but post-corona, I cannot tell you how many people are coming and, and performing. And a big issue is that a lot of the newest people coming in, they're being invited and brought in by these new managers um, whose motivation, you know, like everyone's motivation here, it's to make money, I understand. But a lot of the dancers coming in, they don't have background knowledge as far as the work scene here, the legal rules that you have to deal with with dancing, or what you should be charging. And a lot of people are so desperate to be like seen on stage or seen on social media dancing here that they're dancing for extremely low amounts of money. So that was another thing that I found when I went back um, to some of the same places I'd been dancing before. For example, maybe I had a certain set amount of money that they would pay me in my band as a salary every time. And then we would have a certain split of the money that was thrown or given to me during the performance. Cause in cabarets, they throw money, they hand you money as tips and it's usually a lot. Okay. And pre-corona I would have a cut. So I would be making like good amount of money for, for my dance shows and for my band post-corona, they wanted to pay me less and give me no money no cut from the tips even though it was the same from pre-corona and they said no no problem another girl will do it so now that's another issue um and it's why you saw a lot of the higher level dancers taking a long time to come back to regular performing honestly it was places didn't want to pay and they used corona as an excuse but in the end, I think they were really just being cheap because I went to these places and they were doing just fine. Maybe it took a little bit of time to come back, but they were doing just fine. And 
it's just crazy. Even in the same, um, a lot of the same venues, the prices have just dropped like drastically, like by half or more of what they were pre-corona. Even prices sell like for dancers, what they're paying for dancers. Yes. Because I bet prices for clients, they probably might have gone even higher than pre-corona. Maybe, who knows? But um, yeah, I, I, I think it's a number of different things that kind of contributed to this, but um, it's a bad situation here money-wise. Like, and I think that's why the, the overall quality of dance has somewhat dropped as well because um, especially in the disco venues, you can imagine because of the different context in which the dancer is performing, like some of these places don't care so much about the quality anymore. They just need somebody to be on stage, you know? Um, mm -hmm. it's, it's a big difference between those kind of venues and like when you're performing with a whole band, there's a big divide in, in how much skill you need to be able to perform certain things. Not saying that there aren't great dancers here now, there are, but it's different than it was before. And I think anybody who's, who's kind of watched the scene develop online the past few years would, would know what I'm talking about. It's just very different. And I feel like a big part of that is the money because there are a lot of places I won't perform anymore because they're not paying me a fair amount of money for, for what I'm delivering. That's very sad to hear because uh, Kyra was always uh, such a center of attention and like kind of center of dance development. And uh, although um, Kyra's scene was always different, very different theme than, let's say, festival world around the, um, the globe or um, even local gigs in each separate country outside of each. But still, like we were all looking what is happening in Cairo, how dance is developing in Cairo. And there were always a lot of foreign influence in Cairo too, because there's like, it's known there are many foreign dancers working in Cairo all the time, but it's sad to hear kind of that it goes, um, mm, how to say it even, uh, not developing, but it, it sounds like it's just following the market economic influences and uh, in simplifying direction, let's say, even the fact like, oh, in Cairo, it's always live music, or in majority of cases, it's live music, it's a band, it's known, like, oh, in Cairo, 20 people, live band, and that's the thing of dancing in Cairo. And it almost sounds like it's soon, uh, uh, or not soon, it will ex um, disappear but it really decreased uh, because in most cases it's now recorded music just like most gigs around the world for many belly dances outside of, of egypt yes absolutely uh, yeah i also noticed that um few times you already were like also mentioned that your personal direction in dance uh, changed and you start performing like class I assume partially for due to like economic reasons that venues stopped paying normally but partially probably like your own like dance goals and re and, and uh, direct focus changed during lockdown period uh did you spend that time in egypt or you went uh, to us or somewhere else uh how was that for you that period 
So when the pandemic first started, um, my dad, who is a doctor, he works in two hospitals in his local area. Before things started like getting super, super serious and lockdowns happened, he kind of knew that it was going to eventually happen. Mm -hmm. So he let me know in advance. He was like, hey, look, I don't think you're going to be working. I don't think you're going to be performing for a few months. And, you know, we had no idea what the situation was going to look like in different places. So he was like, look, you're not going to be working. How about you just come home and visit and stay with us for a little while? And once I started seeing places locked down, I was like, okay, I would rather be locked down in my parents' area. It's like out in nature. I can spend time with my family, which I don't usually get to do, um, and take a nice break. Because at that point, I was honestly feeling kind of burnout. I had, I had been working like like I said, a very taxing full-time performance career for for quite some time at that point and only really taking time off to go travel and teach workshops and then come back to go directly back to performing. So I was really burnt out. I was happy to have a break. Little did we know how long of a break it, it was going to be. That was a surprise. Uh, so yeah, Right at the beginning of the pandemic, I went back uh, to spend time with my parents. Like I still have my apartment in Egypt. I just had some of my friends stay here, which actually worked out to some of their advantage because some of my dance friends that stayed here, their only income was performing. And for months they couldn't perform. So one of my friends ended up just coming and staying here at my apartment because her apartment kicked her out. She couldn't pay her rent. So, yeah, <laughs> at least I still had um, enough income, you know, to support my place back here and everything. But I, I went to the States for a few months. I got stuck there a lot longer than I had anticipated because they actually closed the airport in Egypt for several months. So I basically had to stay here and or stay there in the States until the airport opened again and then I could finally come back. But yeah, obviously in that time, a lot of performers suffered um, because there's so many people that this is all they do. They don't have a side hustle. They don't have um, passive income streams. And luckily for me, I had already started working on passive income streams via like monetization stuff online, music sales and stuff online. But um, the majority of the teaching I had been doing up until that point was really just when I went and taught workshops. When you're performing full time, you don't have time to do anything other than that, than just perform, wake up, wake up 5 p.m., perform all night, go to sleep in the early morning, and that's all you have energy and time for. So I took a break for like a few weeks right at the beginning. But then when it became apparent that this was going to be a longer term thing, pretty early on, I started exploring the online stuff um, and getting back into teaching. And I took almost a full year off of really performing because I also didn't want to get sick. A lot of people went back into it 
a lot faster because they really needed it. Like that was their only source of income. But for me, I took a lot longer to try to come back because I, I, I didn't want to get Corona, especially before I got vaccinated. So that was another inspiration for me to move my business more towards teaching. And it turned out to be a really wonderful opportunity because like I said, for years, I really only had time to do workshops, but there was a lot of interest in regular classes with me. And then there was also a lot of development. I got to sit down and kind of go back over the things that I'd learned the past several years in performing regularly, all the cultural stuff I had learned, and also dig back into studying things I wanted to learn more about and developing myself, which again, you don't have time when you're a performer. Um, the more artistic side, you don't necessarily have as much time to put like into practice and into study. So it actually ended up being a big blessing in disguise because it it allowed me to pursue and develop this whole different side of the dance and of my career that I really didn't have time to foster before. Um, so yeah, now after coming back, like I said, last year, I tried to go back a little bit to the performing and I just realized how different it was. Um, and I knew I wanted to keep the teaching stuff going so I knew I didn't want to go back to working every single night. So now, basically, what my life looks like is a balance between continuing to develop my teaching stuff and hosting other kind of teachers on my platform and online, traveling again now that it's opening up to do workshops. And then when I have time in Cairo, um, performing mostly at private events, but now uh, starting at some performance venues, but only um, with orchestra. So it's very limited what I'm doing like publicly for performing. Well, I have uh, quite a lot of questions popping out in my mind right now, but <laughs> let's start with the topic of uh, uh, teaching and online teaching. And uh, you're a very like, experienced teacher in general, and uh, uh, you were teaching a lot before, but due, due to lockdown, we all had to focus even more specifically on the online component of lockdown. And I'm uh, wondering, I'm curious to know like your decision, because at this point right now, you have not just like online classes, you actually have a membership uh, option and a membership sort of platform for, for people. Why did you decide to choose this kind of format instead of going, let's say, with traditional, uh, I don't know, regular classes on Zoom or maybe courses uh, like many other dancers are doing? Why did you decide to do a membership option for people to study with you? So when before traveling and performing came back into kind of an option, became an option again for something for me to do it was easy for me to keep up with regular like really really regular live classes um and i noticed that a lot of people were asking for the recordings of the live classes as well 
and I don't like recording Zoom classes. I'm so I'm so type A about the quality of everything. So if I was gonna pre sell something recorded, I wanted to make it really nice. <laughs> and so I figured a good idea as I have less and less time to do the regular live classes to just record kind of a library of a lot of my base technique um, that tend to be the things that people work on the most. It was just really interesting to, to experiment the past few years, teaching different subjects, seeing what people responded to, seeing what people were the most interested in, and then kind of narrowing down those subjects and, and filming stuff that would be helpful for people to take as a class over and over in practice, like some of the base technique, some of the conditioning tend to be the things that people want to do the most. So I figured why not just make a library of really nice videos of me teaching all of these base techniques that I have that people can go and study with anytime. Um, and then when I do have the time, I can do a live workshop here and there because it used to be several times a month and now uh, between traveling and doing tours and performing, it's maybe once or twice a month that I have time to do something live. So I figured instead of selling individual videos, instead of being very sporadic in when I can do the live stuff to offer people who wanted to study regularly an option that made more sense. Um, and just developing a library of a lot of my base technique uh, choreographies with the music that I've produced, and then also starting to record stuff here in Egypt with local artists, kind of taking advantage of my access um, to more local artists and recording things that I feel are important for people to learn about. And like I said, it's much easier to to give people a monthly access to this library that just keeps growing as opposed to trying to sell like individual videos. It's easier for people because I know there's a lot of economic problems right now. It's easier to, to afford something like that. Um, and it just makes more sense if, if what people want is to study regularly, then it makes more sense for them to like a studio to have a monthly membership option and then they can study as much as they want month by month what was the most uh, um, surprising subject that people reacted in the way you could not ever imagine i mean subject or the topic of the class that you recorded or gave and then you didn't expect that there will be such reaction to it that's a good question i have to think about that um i mean I feel like a lot of the subjects, I had a pretty good idea of what people would like going into it. Um, but the response on some of the classes was like, especially in the beginning, I was really surprised by just how many people wanted to jump in. Specifically, you know, things like shimmy technique, belly technique, but then also lecture wise, I guess that's been the more surprising part is seeing how much people are interested in just hearing me talk about different subjects like uh the cairo dance scene obviously i've done several lectures on that and then i filmed like an extensive lecture on it 
for my membership. People are really fascinated. And I guess me living here for so long and being in this bubble, the most surprising thing was things that I came to be really used to and thought were like normal common knowledge when you live here, starting to present things to the outside world and people being like really surprised. I think that for me was the most surprising thing was like talking more about dance in Egypt and in the Middle East and how surprising a lot of that information was or knew a lot of that information was for people outside. Um, like I said, I guess because I've been so long here and really living and working inside of this bubble that we have here that I didn't quite realize the extent to which the outside dance world is so out of touch with the dance as it exists inside of Egypt. Like that talking about dance here has been the most surprising thing for me just the realization of the disconnect, but how interested people are at the same time. As far as I know, inside your membership, you actually have a really big variety of classes. And right now you just gave one example, like lectures and not only lectures about like history uh, of belly dance or some theory, I don't know, music or dance, but even like cultural today's uh, reality of uh, like example like seen in Cairo as you mentioned as a lecture inside your membership but you have a lot of different um, topics and subjects that are not related directly let's say dance subjects like you mentioned shimmies or belly work technique etc but that's like typical dance topics I know you have much more in your membership so can you tell a little bit more of what a person can expect to see and find inside your uh, membership, let's call it membership school. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so like I said, one thing that I've been trying to expand on more and experiment with more, especially this year, like it started as a way for me to have my library of offerings online. But then I realized that there's a lot of other subjects that I would rather have other people teach. And since I'm here in Egypt and I have access to so many local artists, I would rather have them teach. And I also have the Arabic skills, but then also the resources um, to translate. And I think as I was looking again at the outside belly dance world, I realized that there's a disconnect because usually the knowledge people are getting is like secondhand, thirdhand, or through teachers that might not be able to communicate well in English, and then people never invest in proper translators for them. Um, so you're never getting like the best quality information. So there's some subjects that I really wanted people to have better information and connection on. So I'm working on um, filming with some teachers here, Arabic teachers, music teachers, uh, going to certain regions like in the spring we went down to Luxor and we filmed with local musicians, local dancers. We did an interview and a class with Khairiya Mazin for a Kawazi and translated into English her interview. Like um, I'm not going to make this the bulk of what I do. It's still going to be a lot of me, you know, teaching my basic stuff, but 
there's so many other things, like you said, that aren't necessarily dance itself, that for me personally, in my own learning process have been extremely important as to like how I've ended up as a dancer and how I've accumulated my knowledge. And so much of that is like the experiences and the interactions that I've had here learning directly with local artists. So I wanted to incorporate that in some way into what I was doing, as well as, you know, the past two years, like I said, there's been a lot of issues for artists here. So I hosted live classes as well as recording these pre-recorded classes with local artists because they really suffered a lot. They didn't have a lot of outlet for work. So producing music and filming and hosting local artists for live classes was also a way to kind of support the local dance economy um, and try to try to help some of the artists I know out. Speaking also of local scene, I saw, I don't know if you're still doing, but I saw for quite a while, you actually were doing classes, live classes in studio in Cairo. Mm -hmm. Can you share a little bit more? Because that's something um, for many people maybe surprising because we all say like, oh, we know like Cairo as well as like Turkey, uh, like they are known for ballet dance, uh, performances, etc. But it's so difficult to find uh, classes in those regions, actually classes open to public group classes and studios. I know they probably exist, but it's not really a theme like in many other countries outside of Egypt. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, can you share a little bit about that idea and the decision for you to go and teach in person, in studio, in Cairo? And what was that experience? So I was kind of pulled into this scene. Um, it was actually local instructors asking me to come in for special events and for classes to teach for their students that got me into this, this new world. Because like I mentioned before, and I will mention over and over, you will never understand how much or how many places the dance exists here and to the extent that it does online, because there are so many spaces that are completely closed and private to the outside world. Uh, and then the language barrier is another thing. Um, if you don't speak Arabic, there's just certain things you're never gonna know about. Um, so it's actually become in the past several years, extremely popular at ladies only spaces and gyms and dance studios to have belly dance classes. Um, it's a huge thing now, like two weeks ago, I think it was, two or three weeks ago, I had like four parties in one week, just at ladies only gyms, each place with like 50, 60 ladies showing up, female tabla player, female belly dance instructors in a completely closed space. Cause obviously at least half of these women, if not more are women that wear hijab. So when they come into the ladies only spaces, they take their hijab off, some of them even dress up in their own belly dance costumes and they come for classes, they have parties, they just wanna to dance together. Um, this has become an extremely popular thing within Cairo. And there's even a whole variety of dance teachers 
that only cater to this group. And you don't see them in the outside world again because they're covered women that only uncover and teach and dance in front of other women. So you're never going to know like that this exists, but it's a huge thing in Cairo right now. And it's just for other Egyptian women. It is not for foreigners. And there's usually very little, if no crossover between the foreign dance market and the teachers that specifically teach for foreigners and the dance festivals and everything. There's almost no crossover between these realms. Mm. Yeah. And that's actually something that I have an issue with at points because a lot of it has to do with money. Mm. Uh, but in terms of teaching those classes, what do you find for you the most significant? Like, did, did you have to adjust your teaching style? For instance, if you were teaching class in Cairo, uh, vice versa, teaching class to like regular, I don't know, uh, festival or regular school somewhere around the world or in US, for instance. Yes, the teaching style is different. Um, and in each place, when I show up, it's also different what the students are going to want. Because in some studios, they do want to learn the technique. Um, and you can stop and talk. And some of the teachers here are actually quite eloquent and really good at breaking down technique. But at the same time, like since these are Egyptian women, half of if not more than half of the motivation for them going is just to be able to dance. So you have to dance throughout much more of the class as opposed to like drilling. They don't want to drill and they don't want you to talk too much. Like they do want to understand tips about the technique, but it's like teach technique for one minute, dance a whole song for five minutes. You know what I mean? They want to dance. They don't want to feel like they're doing a workout class they want to they want to feel like they're dancing because they know the songs and when the songs come on they just start going so what i found is that to be a really uh successful instructor here obviously like i said you have to speak some arabic at least some uh you have to joke with them you have to be fun you have to be funny if you do break down technique you have to keep it to a very minimum talking and the most important part, just like performing, is that you need to understand the movements and the music enough to dance and move in a way that they relate with as Egyptian women so that they have fun dancing along with you. Because if you're doing a very kind of mechanical or disconnected dance style, that's not what they want to do. But if you can groove with the music in a way that they identify with, then they go crazy because they, they want to dance along with what you're doing. So it is definitely a different teaching style. And it's something that's also inspiring me for new ideas of working with dancers outside and incorporating that more. Because I feel like it's the opposite in Western dance classes. We focus too much on technique breakdown and too much on drilling and not enough on dancing through whole songs and enjoying the dance as it is just for the, the joy of dancing. It becomes so technical um but to capture the true essence like dancing with these ladies it's 
they're dancing for joy and they don't care if they're doing everything perfectly the way that you are like they just want to express themselves and and let loose in that safe environment for themselves wow i'm actually very happy i asked because that was a complete surprise for me what i thought oh maybe there is a scene for like i don't know a small scene of foreign dancers coming and studying in Cairo and that's why you decided like also to join like these classes but now you're opening the whole new spectrum and scene yeah. which uh, i was like whoa okay that's it's, really it's interesting all egyptian ladies and oh. if there's a foreigner in class it's like if someone randomly showed up because they saw that i posted online and they show up and they're just like what is going on here <laughs> But yeah, the majority of the audience for this is Egyptian women. Yeah. Well, yeah. one more topic that I definitely want at least to touch base before uh, before we summarize a conversation. But one important topic that I definitely want at least to try to dig in a little bit is you mentioned that COVID and lockdown uh, brought sort of two areas uh, or gave you space to develop two areas of your life. One was like different business uh, directions. And one of them, we talked about teaching and online teaching and creating your membership. But another thing that you were saying that it gave you space for personal artistic development. And I would like to ask you how, what did you mean by that? How did it happen? And uh, uh, how did it change your maybe relationships or understanding of dance right now. But what did you put in those words, like personal artistic development due to pause in active performance activities? <laughs> mm -hmm. Well, when you are performing in the commercial market, obviously there is a certain level of your personal artistic expression, but at the same time, when you are performing for the general public the focus of the dance changes a lot like in the dance community most people are doing it for themselves and even if they perform as a hobbyist it's mostly because of what they want to do and fulfilling something personal for them personal enjoyment but when you work for the commercial public your focus changes and you make decisions based on you know like what's going to work, what's going to make your audience happy, what's going to get you booked uh, and make you a successful performer in the commercial realm. So taking a step back, I got to look at my dance from an outsider perspective again and sit and think about what I want my dance to look more like. And the other thing that's nice about teaching more is it gave me the same opportunity because when I'm teaching other dancers, there's a lot of subjects that I enjoy that I'm not able to perform as much if I'm public performing. So one of the first and main things I really dug into was golden era because I had been obsessed for a long time. It gave me a lot of time to dig more into that subject, especially because it was becoming more popular. So I knew that I would have a good reason to, to study it, but it was also something that I felt was really important, especially because the dance in the festival scene and the commercial scene in Egypt in different ways 
we're both going very far away from the original forms of belly dance. Like in the festival world, it's this kind of super technical, like lots of modern dance elements and the musicality because of competitions is focused much more around accenting and being very dramatic and impressive. So that style was drifting farther and farther away from the original dance. And then as well here in Cairo with the rise of like the Mahaganat stuff and the modern musical trends and nightlife trends, that was also like departing in its own way away from mm -hmm. the original belly dance styles. But the old original styles were, have always been my favorite and um, what I'd like to emulate the most. So that's one thing that I took a lot of time to kind of stop and study a lot. And even coming back to performing now, I feel like it helped my style a lot. I feel better as a performer now after taking that break and practicing a lot. And um, I also did a lot of ballet training the past two years uh, to feel more stable on my feet, to have more um, balance and flexibility and incorporate some different movements. Um, and then another thing that's not necessarily artistic, but it did help my development in teaching. I also started a, a new certification program in developing my teaching skills, um, which is corrective movement therapy cer certification. So it's, it's about assessing people's bodies for musculoskeletal imbalances and how it might be affecting the way that they move and the way that their muscles work, which is extremely helpful for dance teachers. Because another thing I noticed in the dance scene as I was traveling and teaching was that it became so focused around choreography. And then I would see that people's technique was actually lacking because so much of the training was just repeating someone else's choreography with minimal kind of breakdown minimal body awareness is one thing i noticed when i was watching people in class so i definitely went down that rabbit hole of learning more about correcting people's bodies giving people exercises to get more in touch with their muscles so they can dance with more body awareness and really develop their technique as opposed to just copying choreographies over and over. So it just gave me time, you know, to kind of look at all of these different things I was noticing about myself, about the dance scene, and kind of deciding on where to put my time now that I had extra time on all of those elements that I was noticing. It's, it's been really inspiring. And I feel like I've changed a lot as a dancer and as a dance teacher because of all of this time that I've had to kind of like reassess <laughs> everything. It sounds like that certification program that you're talking about, it's kind of like developing a special conditioning for dancers. And I know that you are a big fan of conditioning exercises for a long time, even for yourself personally. And now you are expanding it also in coaching and you even helping local professional dancers in Cairo with some coaching in terms of like conditioning their body and helping them to prepare, to be ready to perform actively. But with all your observations that you noticed, what do you feel is the most uh, common problem in either muscles or, I don't know, posture or whatever it is 
from the point of view of this conditioning and define like uh, analyzing the dancer's body, what is the most common problem that most dancers are not aware of or don't think of, but it really influences their dance technique and quality of their dance? Absolutely. Two things in particular. One thing I'll start with because I already mentioned is body awareness. Because if you train only like focusing all of your energy on watching a teacher do choreography and trying to copy, you have no awareness as to what's actually going on inside of your body. And to reach a higher level of dance as a professional dancer, so much of it comes down to the nuances and how you choose to position your body and use your muscles to manipulate the, the movements themselves. So I see a lot of people dancing, but not necessarily being mindful in what muscles they're using, what muscles they're not using, how they're positioning their body and making conscious choices about all of those things to make the dance look the way that they want. They're just moving, blindly moving, trying to copy a combination or a choreography. So body awareness is one huge thing um, people aren't connecting inside with what's going on and making conscious choices about their movement and where it's coming from. And then, uh, posture, I would say is the other big thing I'm noticing specifically in the pelvis. Um, a lot of people just in general, in everyday life have a weakness in their abdominals, specifically lower abdominals and have this kind of anterior pelvic tilt which is like the belly being pooched out and the butt sticking out and you have more of a curve in the lower back this is basically what anterior pelvic tilt looks like and this causes a lot of problems when you dance and you move your hips it causes back problems people aren't using their abdominals enough and then it also um changes the movement in the hips and the movement in the knees when you're in an anterior pelvic tilt your knees lock back and so I see a lot of people putting so much energy into their legs for movements like shimmies and accents, but with their back arched, all of that pressure and energy is pushing back into the knee instead of up into the hip. Um, and I see a couple modern Egyptian style teachers teaching this very like big leg driven shimmy, uh, which by the way, is very different from what people actually do here on stage shimmy wise and this is a completely new technique not that i'm saying you can't do it i'm just saying there's a lot of people that are like this is what the shimmy is and i'm like actually <laughs> go watch some of the hookers at the cabaret dance you'll have a much better idea of what shimmies look like here but also i was gonna say this leg driven shimmy which i drive through the legs as well but it's just a little different technique if you do it with the pelvis in the wrong place, none of it goes into your hips and you're just shaking your legs. And this is a detail that some teachers don't necessarily point out, but from a technical standpoint, like I'll watch the teacher do it and the hips will be moving a lot and the students do it and just their legs are moving and it has everything to do with just the slight change in position of the pelvis the tilt of the pelvis and then the alignment of pelvis in relation to the feet and to the chest. Egyptian dancers um, have much more of a, a straight up and down 
column with the body. And this is what gives us a lot of that vertical hip movement. Uh, so when our back is in an arch and we do that technique, it just doesn't happen. But this could also tie back into the body awareness thing that people are watching, but they're not seeing the, the details in the teacher's body, the alignment, which muscles are driving the movement, and they're just copying without being inside of their bodies. So the movement just doesn't at all look or work the same. Yeah, that's also interesting. Uh, another layer of what dancers should think about because for most of dancers who come to the class, they come to ballet dance class for this activity, for condition and activity of their body, regardless what goals exactly are, but it's like, oh, having physical activity in the in their life and then suddenly we are talking about oh you actually need to have conditioning classes in order to prepare your body to dance <laughs> which uh for many people is a very foreign uh, concept what do you mean i dance to to make my body feel good and here i need to do something extra to make my body feel good in order to dance so thank you for sharing and it's also a great reminder for teachers because of course uh most students, uh, unless they're professional dancers, they may not separate, you know, today it's my dance training, like then it's my session on the conditioning uh, exercises, etc. But it's a very important reminder for teachers to bring elements, not only to observe and keep an eye on proper technique, but to bring some elements of condition exercises into a regular belly dance class. So students who come to belly dance class, they receive both of those things, uh, as a part of their dance training, because it's not separate. It's something that will help them to understand and to perform ballet dance technique uh, better and in a safer way for their own body. Yeah, exactly. Like a lot of it also comes down, not just to doing the technique properly, but also to injury prevention. Because I would say the main injuries we see are ankles, knees, low back in belly dance and all of this is usually because people are doing movements that they need preparation for to be able to do like coming into releve doing turns you can't just go straight into that with no preparation for your body if you've never done these things before you need the strength in your calves the stability in your ankles you know to even get to that point and i think that sometimes in belly dance we skip straight to the movements before having the the base strength and and technique to and balance to to really do it properly and then you can't build good technique if you don't have a base so it just never gets better for some people well and as a side note i know you have some conditioning classes and lectures in inside your membership too <laughs> so for people who are looking for well-rounded uh, training that's an option to source of information uh i'm also curious to ask about your current like goals and dreams not current actually vision for the future how do you see where is your dance focus right now how do you see your nearest let's say dance develop development of your dance journey uh and with all these changes in your dance activities do you still see it happening all in cairo or somewhere else uh i have a lot of ideas <laughs> 
for things I want to do moving forward. And again, like it's just been really interesting the past few years because it's given me time to kind of look at myself, but then also look at the dance scene and kind of see where there are gaps in what people might be interested in, but there aren't as many opportunities for. So for now, I'm going to keep teaching online and international workshops are coming back. I'm going to be touring a lot the next two years and teaching. Um, but moving forward in the future, things that I want to develop. Uh, I've just started running tours to Cairo. Um, and again, this is really based on what I've seen there's interest in and there's kind of a lack at the same time in it's been frustrating to see people come for a lot of the bigger festivals here and just spend all of their time in a hotel and not really get to see Egypt like you're coming you're paying all this money to come here and taking your time off and that's not an easy thing to to do for most people like it's a lot of time and, and money and it means a lot. And then they show up and they just spend all their time in a hotel ballroom like you could at any festival anywhere in the world so. I'm trying to make opportunities here with some like very small intimate tour groups to really kind of share the experience that I have here, this more insider intimate experience, exploring the city, exploring outside of the city and getting these more like real life experiences directly with artists and just normal people everywhere, you know to really get a sense of the life here and how the art factors into it by seeing a variety of things. So that's something that's developing a lot right now. Next year, we have three tours. Every year we have more. What does We started the... last year with one and now it's kind of exploding. What is the next uh, nearest dates that people can still join your tour in Cairo? So we have two coming up in October that are already totally full because we're keeping numbers very small, like maximum 10, 12 people so that we're able to do more of the intimate experiences that I want to do and that people feel like they're having a personal experience. So that limits it a little bit. But next year, we just announced our dates in May. We're going to do a Cairo tour. Um, and then in the fall, we're going to do an upper Egypt tour and rent like a private boat and cruise between, um, Luxor and Aswan. So we're doing that one will be much more folklore. The Cairo one is much more like modern Cairo dance scene, going to current performance venues, shopping, taking classes, stuff like that. So we've got that going on, but then also a long-term goal for me would be to put together more of a teaching teacher training or teacher development program for dancers that's based more around how to be a good teacher and the knowledge that you need as opposed to selling people like a specific like i'm not i don't want to sell people my technique i want to enable people to share their personal dance style so more about how to correct students' bodies, how to break down and explain the movements that you're doing. Just being, how to be a good teacher, not how to teach my repertoire. You know what I mean? Because I feel like that's what a lot of teacher training is based around, is, is learning a certain repertoire of movements. 
as opposed to learning how to break down your own movements and how to articulate those to other people, how to build a really like exciting class. Um, there's so many elements that go into being a teacher that I would love to help share to people. Um, that's missing from from a lot of the way that I've seen this dance being taught. So that's something that I would love to do is help teachers develop their own their own repertoire and their own method and and because we have so many talented te dancers, but teaching is a whole other thing. You need to learn how to teach. Um, so it would be, I think, really good for the dance community to try to help teachers be able to to teach their own unique style and perspective. Wow, so many different directions and so many different, you know, projects and ideas. And I'm very excited uh, to see how it all will unfold and probably will bloom even uh, more than expected right now. And uh, well, on this note, I hope part three of our conversation will be not in five years from now. <laughs> I'll definitely <laughs> reach out sooner than that. Uh, but wishing you good luck with all your both current projects and upcoming projects. I know it's a lot of energy. I know it's a lot of uh, changes, but I also hope it uh, brings you that true fulfillment that we are all searching in dance. But sometimes we go one direction and we get lost in it just because we thought that's what we wanted but we're not always checking with our soul and heart really like is that what I really want so I hope that this expansion of different things and activities brings you true fulfillment that it's not just by the you know automatic autopilot but it's actually the direction that you want to go and definitely wishing you good luck in further growth and further um reincarnations let's say in the dance dance world and dance journey <laughs> thank you and uh, also on this note i want to remind our listeners that i will include a link to your social media that people can uh, follow all your activities including online classes membership option and tours to egypt and all this new upcoming project that you have been talking about and uh, i also want to summarize our interview with our traditional question which i asked you once already but it was so many years ago and i don't know uh, if the answer will be different or it will be the same but it's anyway great question a great way to end up out of this conversation and also to see the evolution and development of your like inner world and our traditional question which i ask every single guest at the end of interview, regardless of what we talked during our conversation, is uh, is this one. What makes you fall in love with belly dance again and again that you keep doing it for so many years? I, uh, I just fundamentally love uh, dancing. <laughs> it gives me so much. Like, I still love it after all of this time. Um, I love how I feel when I'm dancing and I love being able to share that with other people, whether it be audiences on a stage or enabling students to, to experience that same kind of joy of movement in their bodies. 
that's it for today. I hope you have enjoyed this episode and before you leave, don't forget to screenshot and share it with your friends. The more people get inspired, the better it is for our dance community. Until next time, keep shimming and see you soon. This episode was brought to you by the Yana Dance Club, a meeting place for committed dance enthusiasts of all levels. Most of our members shared that the club helped them to improve consistency in their training, meet new dance friends and discover various topics through hundreds of different tutorials. This is definitely a belly dance training that becomes a lifestyle. Learn more at yanadanceclub.com, link in the show notes or simply visit yanadanceclub.com and try for 7 days for free.